Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. The name of this morning's message is Glorify Thy Name. And it was yesterday morning. I was awoken about 5.30. Wasn't really able to go back to sleep. But just over and over I kept hearing Glorify Thy Name. And thinking it all as I laid there and tried to sleep, as I got up, uh, as I was in my prayer time journaling, scripture reading, it was just that's all I could think of was really glorify thy name. And later on in the day, I found out that was going to be the message. So it's wonderful how God does these things. But in Psalm 86, verses 8 through 13, in the scriptures, what we find is, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. And you know, um, there at the end of worship, Jamie was singing about our God reigns. And ultimately, that is the end result of God's name being glorified. Is for Him being exalted to the ends of the earth and for all the nations coming to glorify His name under His reign, which will know no end. Now, within this week's portion, there are a number of topics that, that come up, but one of them which came up in this week's uh, discussion on our Realm chat board was with regard to the wayward wife and the, the topic of marriage and God's desire to see marriage restored. And one of the items that came up was during the interaction between the woman and the priest, there's a point where God's name is erased into the waters. And when that topic comes up, it stirs things in our, in our minds of what are the, what's the depth and implication of this? Because God's name is holy. God's name is revered. And it is so revered that we go to great lengths to give honor to his name. And so we sanctify his name. Some of the ways that it's sanctified are you know, safeguarding its usage. Not to treat his name as common, but to treat his name as holy. Books with God's name are given a position of honor. So like uh, I've explained this a few years ago, I have a chumash that has the name of God written in it. Okay? because it's, it has the Hebrew and the English. And then I have a Bible, right, which does not have his name written in it. Now, 
both are precious, right? But the name being in this book gives it precedent over the Bible that doesn't have his name. So if I'm going to stack these two, I'm going to put the Chumash on top to give it the place of honor, to honor his name. And then it's also that there's no, it's forbidden to erase God's name. In fact, if his name is written on paper or in a scroll, that scroll is buried when it is no longer going to be used. And so you wouldn't write God's name on a dry erase board or a chalkboard or anywhere else where it could be wiped out okay, in order to give honor to our God. Now, his name is a reflection of his character, his nature, his authority, and his power, right? And so we give honor to his name, but his name is so much more than, than letters. His name goes beyond that. His name reveals who he is. There's a time when in the scriptures where God says to Moses, you haven't known me by my name, yod heh vav the, the, the forefathers, they knew me by El Shaddai, but not yod heh vav Now, Abraham knew the name yod heh vav that's in the scriptures back from Genesis 15. But God was saying, you haven't known me by this name, in that you haven't experienced the mercy and the compassion that I show through this name. And so when we talk about his name or even the name of Yeshua, we're talking about something that goes beyond a pronunciation, beyond a written expression. It, it really does come down to his kingdom. And in Philippians 2, verses 7 through 11, speaking of Yeshua, it says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the name of Yeshua it's his name, but it's also the authority given to him, the reign given to him by God, where everything is being brought into subjection under Yeshua's feet. And his kingdom will know no end. All right, so we revere the name of God. We treasure the name of God. We give glory to him. And God has given glory to Yeshua because Yeshua sought to glorify God's name by humbling himself and going out for God's kingdom purposes to give himself up for a people who would be ransomed unto God. Now in 1 Peter 2.12, we're called to be, to walk in holiness, to walk according to God's ways in order to give glory to God. He said, Peter says, give Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And those good deeds are, are specifically the commandments. 
walking in righteousness and goodness before people so that they will see the goodness of God and they would be able to give glory to His name. So, when we're talking about how precious God's name is and even expressing it in the aspect of His written name, um, we come this week again to this story of the wayward wife. So, Let's look in Numbers 5, 11-31. And we're going to read through the story here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man has intercourse with her, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, although she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, and she has not been caught in the act, If a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. And he shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity." So what's happened here, just to kind of reframe it, is it's unknown if this woman has uh, been unfaithful or not. There are not two witnesses who are able to come and say, yes, she has done this such that she would be brought before the court. Instead, there's suspicion of wrongdoing. And not only is there suspicion, there's also a time where the husband has been aware of the suspicion. He has warned her against it. She's continuing to walk in it. This isn't just uh, a man decides that he's unhappy with his wife and says, okay, I'm now suspicious. So I'm going to take you before the priest and see if these waters do anything to you. Instead, it's a very unique situation um, that, that that is coming up. But now he, so in order to find out is there a way for our relationship to be restored? Is there a path forward for us? The man brings his wife to the priest. And then in, continuing in verse 16, Then the priest shall bring her near and have her stand before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel, and he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall then have the woman stand before the Lord and let the hair of the woman's head go loose, and place the grain offering of memorial in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in the hand of the priest, it is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, bring under the authority of, of your, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, the text trails off like there's a warning that's being given to her. Then after that, the priest shall have the woman swear with an oath of the curse, and the priest shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, by the Lord's making your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. 
The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. And then she, he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse, so that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, and he shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial offering and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And afterward, he shall make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall come about, if she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, that the water which brings a curse will go into her and cause bitterness, and her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. This is the law of jealousy, when a wife being under the authority of her husband goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord, and the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man will be free from guilt, but that woman shall bear her guilt. All right, so that's the entire context here of what's taking place with the testing waters, the waters that cause bitterness. But as we read, when the priest speaks these curses and he says, um, and he says, the Lord making you a curse and an oath among your people and the Lord making your thigh waste away. He has now written those words specifically which contain the name of God and now he has erased them into the waters. Now, just so this story doesn't seem unfair to women, the, repeti- the sages understand that the repetition of the curse, that it's stated once and then it's stated again, is that the second time is stated for the, for the man with whom she was unfaithful. That the same curse that comes upon the woman will come upon the man. So it's, it's not just the woman being brought before the Lord. It's the woman and the potential paramour. And then the other thing, too, is within all of this, it's not, again, it's not a flippant thing. It's only under very cer- certain circumstances that this is brought, and it's brought for the purpose that there could be reconciliation between the man and the woman. And that is, that is of a key important part in this, is the restoration of the man and the woman is so important to God that he is willing to supernaturally intervene in this, in this command to bring forth either, either fertility or wasting away. He's saying that he is not just going to restore, but he's going to bring forth fruit from the woman who has been faithful and been proven true. And the sages do note that this is the only ritual that requires supernatural intervention. So this is going to a whole different degree than other commands or rituals that are given in the Torah. But God is willing to have his name erased. He's willing to humble himself in order for restoration to be a possibility between the man and the woman. I don't know, sometimes the commentary that was mentioned this week from First Fruits of Zion mentioned how the sages understand that the peace in the home is of primary importance to God. That he wants to see a man and a woman walk in unity and 
not being drawn down by anything that would divide them, even to the point they say that religious matters cannot get in the way of a man and a wife. Where that, that's an, that is a picture of God being willing to go low in order to bring the couple up. And in some ways, that, that can be a, a challenging statement, right? How is it that God's name could be profaned so that marriage could be restored. And the thing is, I, I think that in this case, the way that God works, right? He says that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. I think this is a picture of God saying, I am willing to humble myself for life to go forth. And when you think about restoration between a man and a woman, that humility is at the heart of how a restoration and healing takes place. It's the job of both the man and the woman to humble themselves, to go low, to honor the other above themselves, and to say, how can I be an instrument of reconciliation in this marriage? How can I bring restoration? You know, I was thinking about it, when, when Israel is sinful, it places a barrier between God and his people. Now, God removes that barrier through repentance and can bring restoration to that which was lost. It's the same with a man and a woman. When that barrier, perhaps it's, it's sin that's divided, perhaps it's ego, perhaps it's many other things that could have come in and caused the barrier, that barrier has to be removed through repentance, a recognizing of the wrong, and then a turning away from the wrong, a confession of the wrong, for restoration then to move forward. And it really does take a dying to self. Because if you think about the scenario when you're drowning, nothing else matters, it's just about you. But when there's a marriage that's drowning, it's not just you, it's two people. And there becomes the, the need to say, it's not about me. It's not about me. I'm going to have to die to myself so that I may live. And that together we can walk through in restoration and into life. Now, so God allows his name to be erased, and he forgoes the honor due to his great name. Think about that. If God is willing to forego the honor due to him, who is worthy of all honor and praise, how much more should man be willing to forego the honor due to him in order to bring rest restoration. But God humbles himself for this purpose, and the purpose is restoration of the marriage. He says the marriage is worth saving. It's so worth saving that I'll humble myself. And when we look at that picture, we can't help but then think about Yeshua. Yeshua being the one who brings restoration the one who, as we read earlier in Philippians, humbled himself, taking on the form of man, and, and even humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross, so that he could be the one to bring restoration and reconciliation. And it's because he said there's a greater purpose. He said there's a greater purpose, and that's the restoration of mankind. And so he was willing to do it so that he could make God's name great. 
And so when we, when we look at it through this lens, the erasure of God's name is not a profaning of his name, but a sanctification of his name in this case, right? Because the purpose for which it was done was restoration and building up of the kingdom and building up of a people. In, in John 12, 27, Yeshua is in the hours before he will be betrayed. He says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Yeshua answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So he's saying, he's proclaiming what's going to happen, that his reign is going to increase, his kingdom will be established through what will appear to be a profaning of, of God's name, through the death of his only son. But yet, it's for the sanctification and glorification of God's name because it has a higher purpose. Now, as we're talking about the wayward wife and we're talking about this restoration that God's looking to bring, the wayward wife is really a picture of unfaithful man, of unfaithful Israel, of unfaithful us, us, right? Because God has a bride. God has a bride that he brought to himself through covenant that he purchased with a price and said, you're mine, now walk in my ways. And what? how have we done? How have we gone? Have we turned to our own ways? Walked in unrighteousness? God's jealous for his people. He's jealous for his covenant. Just as a, a spirit of jealousy passed over the husband such that he brought his wife before the priest. God's jealous for his people. And his people have to be brought to account. His people have to be brought to account. And... his people will either be shown to be faithful or shown to be unfaithful. And that's a scary thought, right? Because each of us knows the sin that we've walked in, the depth of our own depravity, our need for restoration. And so if these waters of testing come to us and the dirt from the tabernacle has been, tabernacle floor has been put in these waters and we would have to drink those waters, what would it prove? What would prove out? What, what would the outcome be but for the erasure of God's name into those waters such that they become waters of life to us? I was listening to a teaching about this, uh, about the wayward wife from Aleph Beta. And they didn't go into a lot of detail in it, but one of the things they often look to 
is saying, well, what from Israel's past is now being shown and displayed in the, um, in the commandments that God is giving? And many times you'll see parallels between the commands God gives to stories that had unfolded in the past, whether it's in the story of Jacob or Abraham, or in this case, the story of Noah. And there are many connections through the words used in this wayward wife story to tie back to the flood. Specifically, the same word that's used to say that God's name was erased into the waters, in the case of the wayward woman, it's exactly what God said in Genesis 6-7. We said, I will erase man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. That's from Genesis 6-7. He said, I'm going to erase man. He didn't say, I'm going to kill man. He said, I'm going to erase them into the floodwaters. And then there's several other connections that are used here, okay, because he's going to erase man into the water. What else goes into the water with the wayward wife? The name of God, but also the, the dirt from the tabernacle floor. So that word that's used in the tabernacle, it says that he took afar. This is in Numbers 5, 17. He took afar from the floor of the tabernacle and he put it in the water. Well, afar from the earth is what God took to create man. That's from Genesis 2, 7. So he took dirt and created man. And now he's talking about erasing man into the waters to return man to the earth. And there's, there's, there's a few other ones. I'm not going to uh, go into it, but there's other connections that are being made between these two stories. And after the flood, well, what happens in the flood, right? You, you have people who have been unfaithful who come under the, the cursed waters, but then you have Noah and his family who are preserved through the waters. They're preserved through the ark, the one that, was, that had atonement both inside and out. So they were carried through, they were carried through God's, through God's provision. Okay? Now at the end of the floodwaters, God remembers Noah and he says, he speaks blessings over Noah and says, be fruitful and multiply. What happens with the, the woman who's proven true through the way, through the waters of testing? He says she will bear seed. She is going to be fruitful. She is going to have children. And that will be further proof that she was found faithful. And so you have this, you have this picture of the floodwaters that came over the, over the earth to, to wipe out man. And then God says, I'm not going to send that curse again. I'm going to provide the way of restoration and redemption for the world. And he does it through Yeshua. He does it through Yeshua who offered himself as a sacrifice such that he could be the restoration, that he could be the one who proves the woman true. Now, again, we, we look back and you say, how can, how can these waters prove us true? It's because of Yeshua humbling himself and being that atonement for us to carry us through. I was thinking back to when the children of Israel came out of 
out of Egypt and they journeyed for three days and they came to water, but the water was bitter and they couldn't drink the water and they said, we're going to die. And Moses throws the tree into the water and the waters became pure. They became sweet so they could drink. The bitterness was removed such that life could be given forth, right? And that's a picture of Yeshua being thrown into the waters of humanity and becoming the one who takes the curse and reverses it so there might be sweetness and there might be life, there might be restoration. And there's another waters too that I don't know if we can tie the same way we, you know, we, that, uh, that you can tie the flood waters with the, the sota or the, uh, the wayward woman. But there's another waters of purification that cleanses from death. And that's the one that comes forth from the, the ashes of the red heifer. Spring water with the ashes of the red heifer poured into it. That then becomes the sprinkling that goes forward and cleanse, cleanses people from death. So you have these waters that can be transformed from bitterness that can, that can remove the stain of death, that can remove the curse and bring life and restoration to those who are in desperate need, who've been shown mercy and love by God. And the, the source that brings forth this healing and this restoration begins with the humility of our God who's willing to lay himself down the word is willing to become flesh and to dwell among us and to take upon us the sin and our transgressions so that we might have life. And the scriptures say in Isaiah 53, 10, that God was pleased to crush him and to place our transgression on him, on him so that we might be made whole, that we might be healed. It, go, it goes, it really goes beyond what we can understand or grasp the love that God has for us and the links that he will go to to bring back the one who's strayed, the one who's been wayward. And say, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. And I think that's why, even in this story of the wayward wife, it requires a supernatural intervention to bring that restoration. Now, when we talk about humility... You know, God only asks us to do what He Himself will do. He calls us to walk in righteousness because He is righteous. And He gives us the picture of what perfect righteousness is so that we then can go and walk in it. And so when He walks in humility, He calls us too to walk in humility. And when you think about humility, sometimes we have a, a wrong picture of what humility is. Because if you were to take the dictionary and look at it and say, well, what does the dictionary give as, as a definition of humility? Here I, I have written down, not proud or arrogant, not believing that you're important, poor of a low social rank, or ordinary, not special or very important. You know, that doesn't sound very good. And I don't think that's the biblical humility that God calls us to walk in. The humility that God calls us to walk in is one where in which it's not a selfish pride. It's not a pride focused on self, 
but it's one where we are recognizing the greatness of our King and that He has made us His own. He's taken us from a low position and elevated us to a high position. Not so that we would be made great, but so that His name would be made great. And if we don't recognize that, then we'll be hindered in our ability to go and make His name great because He has made us important, right? He's, now, He's called us not to be proud or arrogant, but He hasn't said you're not important. He said you're very important. He said you're worth saving. You're worth the humbling. You're worth the sacrifice. You've been made important and you've been raised to a high rank in the kingdom. See, humility doesn't mean weakness or being pushed around. It doesn't mean a denial of your special abilities and talents that God has given you. It doesn't deny your contribution. It doesn't deny the purposes that God's placed in your life. You know, when the scriptures say that Moses was the most humble of all men, we always get a chuckle because Moses wrote that. But how could, how could we think in terms of the current dictionary definition of Mo- Moses as being humble? As well, not important, not being a very high rank, being weak. It's like, not at all. Moses is one who stood in the gap. Moses is one who defended the downtrodden. Moses was put as the leader of God's people, the one who would serve as, a, as the former redeemer. And then we know that Yeshua, too, exceeded Moses in humility. For he was of even a higher rank than Moses, but yet humbled himself again to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so with that example, and knowing that it's critical for the body of believers to walk in humility just as God humbles himself and as Yeshua walked in humility, we then can say, I've been given a place in the kingdom. I've been given a purpose. I've been given a station. And now I'm going to go forward and do that, and I'm going to represent God for the purpose of making his name great. And that's actually one thing that I think we see in this, in this portion. Not only that a people would go and give their service unto God for his name, but then God in turn honors the one who honors him. So in Numbers 7, we come to the day when the tabernacle was erected and now it's being put in place. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So here, the tribes brought gifts unto God to be used in the tabernacle. And God said, That's wonderful. Let's give them to the, uh, to the Levites for the purpose of the service of the tabernacle. Now then, shortly after this, they want to bring more gifts. And so we go forward to verse 10 in Numbers chapter 7. 
And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. The chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings, one chief each day, for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of 10 shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. On the second day, Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. He offered for his offering one silver plate, whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels. Hang on, am I repeating myself? It's like, yes, I am. I'm repeating myself. And there's 12 of these, so this is going to take a while, so bear with me. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to read them all. But the, the th- so here, the offerings between the tribes are exactly the same. Now, before when they brought the, the carts, God said, okay, yeah, receive them and use them. But now they're going to bring each tribe 12 identical offerings. But God says, no, don't have them bring them all at the same time as they did the carts. Have them each bring one, bring it, have, have one tribe per day bring their offering. And so you might ask the question of, well, why was it? that God wanted each tribe to bring a different offering each day? Was it so that you, you, the celebration would be extended? Or was it to give honor to each of the tribes individually for their contribution? Now we might say, well, it was to extend the celebration. But then when we go and start to read the rest of the chapter and we see that all the offerings, though they were identical, are all written out in detail 12 times. It would have been far easier to say, this is what each tribe brought, each on their day. In fact, Moses might have even asked that. You know, He's like, I got some writer's cramp, God. Can I, uh, can I just summarize, please? But no, it's like, no, God thought it was so important that each tribe would be represented with what they brought, that he had it written in the Torah, and no word in the Torah is wasted. So the sages, in looking at this, say, well, God did it to give them, to afford them honor and to recognize each of their unique contributions to the building up and the dedication of the tabernacle. Now, when we look at it, we say, well, how is it a unique contribution when they're all bringing the same thing? According to tradition, they brought the same thing, but they arrived at their determination of what they were going to bring independently. But they all came to the same gift. But each gift that they brought was for a different reason. It's just that it all balanced out to where it was the same exact components from each tribe. And so what they gathered from this in the stories, in the traditional stories, is that the leaders of the tribes brought both their inner desires and their tribal missions to the joint national goal of inaugurating the tabernacle. 
And in this way, all the tribes were combined into a spiritual and physical spectrum, a combination of spiritual and temporal potential and attainment in the combined service of the national destiny. Now, when we say that, does that not sound like one body with many members, each serving according to the gifting and calling that God has given to each one, each one being important and supporting one another and fulfilling their purposes? That's what we're seeing right here in what God is recognizing and honoring among the tribes is that they have, even though they're one nation, they have a national destiny. They have unique callings and unique purposes. And God was going to honor each of those within them. And I think, well, I can't remember where it is. But when we think about how in the scriptures it says that each of you is being built together as a living stone into a tabernacle unto God for spiritual purposes. God is taking each person within the body and he is fitting them together such that all their qualities, all their gifts, all their callings come together for a higher purpose. And what's the higher purpose? It's for building up the tabernacle of God for his kingdom purposes to bring glory to his name such that his name would be glorified in all the earth. His body, his people, being a witness to all the nations. And in Matthew 23, 12, the scripture says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the picture of God saying, when you will lay aside yourself for my purposes, when you will humble yourself for my purposes, I will raise you up. I will take that which is made low or which was brought low and I will bring it high. And my name will be sanctified and glorified among the nations. In, I want to go back to Philippians 2. In verse 9 is where it picks up after speaking of Yeshua's faithfulness and, and obedience and his humility. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God establishes us in glory through his son. And we in turn give glory to God through the lives that we live living fully and wholly unto him. And going back to Psalm 86, bearing in mind this great king that we have, when we read this again, we declare just with a, with a heart that is given over to him, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name, that I will give thanks to you, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul 
from the depths of Sheol. That's really the whole story this morning. We serve a God like no other, whose ways aren't like any others, who will stop at nothing to restore the lost, to seek and to save that which is lost and to bring it back to him. He's a jealous God, and his jealousy is one that is with love. And his tender mercies and his compassion go to the end of the earth, all to bring us back. Bless God. Does anybody have anything that you wanted to share? Um, another uh, connection between the commandment and a previous <clears throat> event in the Torah is the uh, golden calf. <clears throat> After the golden calf, they, Moses commanded the Israelites to melt the gold again, and then he mixed it up with water and have them drink. And then after that, he commanded the Levites to go to his neighbors and, and kill those who have been part of it, which the Torah records 3,000. So it, even though the Torah doesn't say this, but it seems has to imply that the Levites knew who were the guilty ones mm -hmm. as a result of them drinking the water mixed with the oil, yes. not with the coal, mm -hmm. uh, which is what we see in the Sota. What, it, it, it took a supernatural intervenient, uh, intervention to see if she's guilty or not. In the same incident in the Golden Calf, it took a divine intervention to see who was guilty and who was not guilty mm -hmm. in the matter in the manner of the Golden Calf. Yes, yes, that's excellent. That's a, a great connection there, and that makes complete sense of. They could tell which ones had had the waters of curse come within them. Mm -hmm. All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for your faithfulness to us, your love and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you have glorified your name. Lord, may we, may we glorify your name. Father, I ask that you would move within us to help us to walk in humility before you, to walk in faithfulness towards you, to respond to the love and the kindness that you have shown unto us. Lord, that we would be agents of reconciliation, both in our marriages, with, the, with believers, and with the world. Father, I ask that you're name would be made great to the ends of the earth. Lord, we ask that you bring forth the kingdom of your Son. And may we see it, Lord. May we see his kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Yeshua, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.